Hello, hello, hello. How you doing, guys? It's Munir Adam here, and welcome back. Now, I've got to start by telling you something. Season one is coming to an end. Yeah, that's right. Primary Care UK had its 10th episode recently, and unless you count this one, that was the end of it. And we all know what that means, don't we? It means that season two is going to be with us soon. And by the way, there'll be a trailer for that soon as well. So keep a lookout for that or a listen out or whatever. And so I thought, why not use this opportunity to recap? Recap? Why? Well, actually, have you had the experience where you learn something and then you think you've forgotten most of it? You go back to it and just, I don't know, reread a few lines and suddenly it all comes back. It certainly happens to me lots of times. I think there's something about bringing information back to the front of your brain or something. And so what I'm hoping is that by revisiting a few points from each episode, it may allow you to remember a lot more of what was actually covered in that episode. And I hope you'd agree that there was actually a lot of really interesting stuff covered in those episodes. So worth remembering. And how much do you remember? I'm going to bring out a few questions here and there so that you can work out whether you want to revisit that episode or not. And just one more thing I want to clarify before we get started is what this isn't is some kind of retrospective trailer or anything like that. In fact, as you hear the clips, you will realize that there are important take-home points contained within them and bits that might jog your memory. Obviously, if you haven't heard an episode, it's not going to be jogging any memories but it may help you decide whether you want to go and listen to that episode or not. So give me 10 to 15 minutes of your time and let's do this. Episode 1. We started our journey with Rupert Jaswell reminding us to take a holistic view of the patient because there are so many things that go on in our lives outside of the consultation room which affects how we feel, our perception of our health and actually modifying those can make a big difference to how we feel and how we are. She talked about lifestyle medicine and really reminding us that the day-to-day life of the patient rather than a pill is what we should be focusing on sometimes. And in that episode, she also shared some of her experiences in providing group consultations and talking about why this may be beneficial in certain situations. But what I liked best and what I still remember is this amazing quote that she shared. Here it is. Patients don't actually care what you know until you show that you care. Amazing, isn't it? Here, let's hear a couple of clips from what else she said. There's been lots of studies to show even brief interventions from a healthcare professional is deeply impactful to patients. Even, you know, just the the simple addressing a smoking cessation, for example, or, uh, you know, if if somebody has become overweight and Mm -hmm. as well as your own health behaviours have been shown to impact those of your patients. If we can affect one small change at a time and create deeply ingrained behaviour change, it's a step in the right direction. So what I'd say is start the discussion with patients and they will respond positively to this whole person approach and it will demonstrate further that you care. And maybe think about giving uh, food and exercise prescriptions. So, for example, uh, for for food, uh, look at the type, amount and frequency. And I I always try to give positive food prescriptions, for example. So Mm. rather than say, I'll eat less of this, eat less of that. I find that if you tell them to eat more of something, you eventually crowd out (laughs) the bad food, so to speak. So that's a lovely little tip. Yeah, that Uh, would definitely work with me. Yeah, (laughs) tell me to eat more of something is more likely to be effective. 
<laughs> it always works for me. It's, it's much better than saying, oh, you know, drink less Coke or eat less, mm. eat fewer biscuits. It definitely works. And by the time you've had that planet of broccoli, you're too full to have your biscuit. <laughs> it's not rocket science, is it? I mean, we can all implement that, right? But is it all coming back to you? Do you remember the six pillars of lifestyle medicine? And that phrase, Farmageddon? Anyway, let's move on. And in episode two, we shift our focus towards ourselves, how we learn, and the system of appraisal, which hopefully we are all part of in one way or another. This episode takes a generic view and focuses on getting it right in terms of making it meaningful, productive, and hopefully something that you look forward to rather than run away from. So it doesn't cover the specifics of each individual system, but talks about things like attitude, perspective, reflection. And, well, let's hear a clip. Actually, come to think of it, I've attended quite a few courses over the last year, um, and I've got lots of PowerPoints from it. I think I'll just upload those. No, Shinas, don't do that. Now you're confusing me, Nabila. I mean, I've attended so many amazing courses, like the diabetic one. I've got 200 slides and it's really useful. That should convince my appraiser that I'm engaged with my learning. Shanaz, do you really think that they're going to go through 200 PowerPoint slides? What's really important is what you've learned and what you got out of it. More like personal reflections. Tip four, reflect on your experiences. Common phrase that I often hear people say in various discussions is, don't take it personally. Well, here, I want you to do the opposite. When you do some sort of learning or when something happens, take it personally. And what I mean by that is, what does it actually mean for you? The pitfall here is to focus on what happened rather than what it means for you. Hmm. Some people are naturally good reflectors, aren't they? Like me. Anyway, I'm sure you remember all seven tips at the tip of your tongue. So we don't need to discuss those. And I'm sure you remember that thing which you ideally should not be discussing at an appraisal if you can help it. So, shall we move on? In episode three, we talked about well-being. Yeah, our well-being with Nirja Joshi. And this was quite appropriate, especially as we were coming out or we're in entering or, or somewhere through the COVID-19. I can never quite figure out when it started and when it finished. Finished? Did I just say finished? Anyway, let me ask each of you listeners a question. Ask yourself this question. Can you recognize it if you are stressed yourself? Now, be honest. But how does one recognize it? So I think the most important thing to uh, to think about is to just reflect for a minute. And we often do this nice exercise with our colleagues. So I asked uh, some colleagues in my practice, what am I like on a good day? And just ask three words to describe you on a good day. And often for most healthcare staff, that will be things like helpful, smiley, um, effervescent, you know, all of these very positive words. And then you can ask them to describe three words that you, they feel that you are on a bad day. And that can be things like impatient, irritable. Some people become very quiet or short with their responses. Um, and a, one that we see really commonly is hanger, uh, which is when people get hungry and then become angry. And that can wow. happen, particularly because people become stressed and don't take their breaks. And, and that can lead to people feeling more irritable. And the reason that I say that this is a good time to reflect is how can we recognize we're stressed? Often that's really hard. Often mm. it's the people around us that will recognize the stress 
first. So if we know what those things are for us, then we can recognize it better. So it's better to ask the people around you would be my my tip. So if the answer to my question was no, I hope you found that helpful. Anyway, let's hear a bit more. So one of the best things that we heard is about scheduling. So a lot of times people schedule meetings and often back-to-back meetings without gaps and things like that. But we had a participant show that they were scheduling in well-being activities. So if you can imagine in your calendar that you've got different colours that you can use. So they use the colour blue, for example, and they made sure that every week that they had a blue activity in their diary, which was a blocked out time that they were doing something purely for themselves. So whether that, you know, engaging in uh, going out with friends or going to a show um, or doing something they enjoy, like exercise that they might enjoy, just actually scheduling that time actively to make sure that it does become part of your every working week. Episode 4, The Power of Language. And I found that really fascinating when you really think about how much of an impact it can have by using certain words rather than other words during consultations. So really interesting. Let's hear a bit of it. We form relationships and manage relationships through the words that we use, through the choices that we make about the language we employ. And um, I think we all know this because, you know, the old saying, it's it's not what you say, it's the way that you say it. I mean, that's that's kind of a commonly understood expression. But um, we've seen through our work that the choices people make about the language they use and the language they listen to have consequences for the relationships they form. And I guess those consequences are about the trust or rapport or alignment, whatever you want to call it, that develops between the clinician and their patient. I think um, okay can be misinterpreted, can't it? People can think you mean that their symptoms, that it's okay for them to have their pain or um, you know disability or, or whatever symptom they've got, that uh, that's okay. Um, as Rue said, if somebody says, oh, you know, I, I had a fall yesterday, okay. Well, you, you mm. probably mean there, I understand, tell me more but it might be misread as that's fine. So choose your words carefully, otherwise you might get it wrong. And speaking of getting it wrong, we then had two episodes, special episodes on race. And these featured Navina Evans, the CEO of Health Education England, and a senior team from London leading the RES survey. Wait, you didn't just say RES survey? What's that? Well, Let's hear first from Navina about whether racism or racial discrimination is even a problem in the NHS. And then let's remind ourselves about what RES actually is. How much of a problem is it? Yeah, so I think, I think it's, it is much more common than we think. I think that people are more willing to speak up. I think that uh, our white colleagues and uh, colleagues with more power uh, are much more aware. And that's a good thing. Um, I think social media has given people more of a platform and a voice and it's more instant. So we are much more aware of race inequity uh, and also when incidents happen. So that's that sort of putting it out there and feeling uncomfortable is all part of the process that we have to go through. But it shouldn't stop there. We really need to collectively think about what we do uh, to make things different. And what's res again? 
Yes, thank you. RES is the Workforce Race Equality Standard. It's a staff survey that's been running for over five years. In the main, it has excluded primary care staff. It's run in trusts, both secondary care and mental health trusts, as well as arms length bodies, and looks at the experience of the workforce um, related to various key indicators that include things like um, uh, career progression, a likelihood of being shortlisted for other jobs, numbers of people in different bands, uh, at different levels of leadership in the NHS. And what did the results of the survey show? Wait for this. The, the broad results showed that half of our respondents said that they've experienced discrimination and harassment of some form or other. 50%. Yeah, 50%. Obviously, I've heard it before, but it still shocks me. I suppose the pertinent question is, what should we be doing about it? And do we all have a role there? We all work in teams. We are all leaders. And even if we're not yeah, actively leading, we're certainly supervising. What is the experience of those in your team? I would say really raise your awareness. Please read our survey and then see what is the experience of those in your team and in your workplace. Read the experience of the BMA um, survey that got enormous coverage in the national press. Look at those results and then ask people in your team, you know, what is it like? Are we an inclusive workplace to work in? Um, think about our framework, please. Please join our framework um, and think about the tools that we're offering you. What would you say to listeners who are likely to identify themselves as being from the white group? Yeah. So, you know, I think um, for my white colleagues, I would really ask you to um, be curious, to listen. Don't feel you have to fix it straight away. Listen, sit with the discomfort and ask, not be scared of getting it wrong because, well, you probably will get it wrong. You only learn from when you get it wrong and you cannot imagine how important allies are. And for episode seven, we changed topic completely as we talked about remote consultations, another thing which seemed to have been thrown upon us as the pandemic set in, or at least it seemed that way. And I say that because I think one of the points that Anwar was making was that this was always going to come and the pandemic really just accelerated it. But one thing's for sure, we didn't really have time to prepare for it. And we've not really fully evaluated it either, have we? Even so, I learned loads by having that conversation with Anwar. So let's just recall a couple of those points. To read their non-verbal communications and, and actually looking at the patient at key moments just to emphasize things like I'm just doing with you now. I, but I think the other important thing is take responsibility. Because for the patient, they'll feel I have to perform in this new type of consultation. They've never had in training. And I think what you've got to say to them, and I often say to my own patients, look, if anything goes wrong, it's my problem, not yours. I'll ring you back. And the other thing I say right at the beginning, back to this not assuming, is saying, look, if at the end of it you feel you want to come in, come in. It's not a problem. So let me test you now. Do you remember the concept of disconnect? How about personal capital? It's an interesting concept. No, don't remember it. Time to go back. But we were going to move forward. Let's go on to episode eight. And this is where Mary Rose Shears, the primary care dean for South London, led a team of multi-professional senior members talking about, talking about what? Talking about burnout in educators. Let's listen to a few clips. 
I'm Bianca Osetu, Physician Associate. Um, I'm also a South East London Physician Associate Ambassador. What sort of things keep you well at work and address that burnout? So as ambassadors, we have obviously we have our usual like monthly meetings, but we do have um, meetings amongst ourselves every week. Um, mm-hmm. This could be to discuss what we're doing, you know, what projects we're working on, etc. But also just how we finding things in general. Mm. So it's nice to have a bit of a sort of a support in that way. Um, and, you know, we're not just go, go, go all the time, which is which is good. We have been having socials, which is nice as well. So it's nice to just mingle. <laughs> Was it, Graham? It was actually about this idea of multi-professional learning and how, you know, as a DPP, I've supported my first contact physios through the prescribing course. I've supported nurses through the prescribing course. And that's worked really well. And I've learned examination techniques from those physios. Because one thing I know as a pharmacist, there's not much I can teach a physio about putting hands on a patient. Naturally, the therapeutics and the drugs and all the rest of it is my thing. But it's actually a two-way learning process. The nurses don't feel pressured and I've negotiated a block in the middle of a day so they get an hour of admin that's the same time so we can meet. So as a group of 20 nurses, we meet every, we were going every week in COVID, but it's like every month. So we have support and it's about creating that network, having that protected time just to sit down, have a cup of tea and actually discuss, not to have to be cases, just how you're feeling that day. Um, educators themselves need to be self-aware, recognise the stress on themselves and think about how they manage that and give themselves time. And if that is becoming difficult for them, use those resources that are out there, whether it's coaching, mentoring or other well-being services. There is a wealth of them around. What I found really interesting in that episode was actually to listen to the journey of those from different professions to my own. So being a GP, it was really useful to learn about what it's like for the nurse educators, what it's like for the pharmacy sector and for physicians associates. Anyway, it's all coming back, isn't it? And just uh, episode nine, which was about consultation time management, something that far too many of us feel there just isn't enough of. You know, I can never quite master it. Why is it a problem? What's the impact? And what are we going to do about it? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do about it. We're going to dedicate a few episodes and really hone into this topic in season two. And we're going to hear from a few people who know a lot more about this than I do. And what are the consequences of all of this? Well, your health may suffer. Patient care may suffer. The practice or primary care network may suffer with understaffing. And the NHS and primary care as a whole may suffer if people don't choose to work there and choose other options instead, like working in the private sector, for example. But, but, but that's me talking about season two. Hang on a minute. We're not quite done with season one yet. We have one final episode, and that was on the fellowship scheme. Now, the fellowship scheme is mainly for GPs and nurses that were qualified in the last 12 months. Can you remember the third profession, which at the time of public publication of the episode, Um, had this opportunity offered to them, at least in certain areas in London. If you do, well done. And so let's hear a clip. But the strong um, story coming out of the GP careers intention survey was that it is absolutely possible to have flexible careers, to have ambition, to be supported and to have a peer group. And all of those things together actually led 90% of people to want a portfolio career. 
um, and it made becoming a salary GP or even after a couple of years of partner more and more attractive if those things were in place. And also, um, the careers intention survey strongly showed that the majority of those qualifying in primary care wanted to work in the area they trained, but these were the kind of things they needed in order to enter that form of contract. But hey, I wasn't being sceptical again, was I? But isn't it just the case that people are going to complete their fellowship, it's all great, it's wonderful, a lot of money goes into it, but at the end of it all... Aren't people just going to go away and do what they would have done when they qualified anyway? Not at all. We've had many examples of newly qualified GPs who have completed their fellowship and they've gone on to do all sorts of um, great leadership work. Um, for example, one of our fellows participated in a medical education fellowship alongside UCL Medical School. And they are now leading on that medicine in the community program at UCL. So it's only really the start of the journey. It's sort of a platform for their career. And it just gives them the confidence that they can contribute to the system in all sorts of ways that perhaps they they didn't realise was possible at, at this point in their career. That echoes for the nurses as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the confidence that I've seen in the nurses as they go through the programme. They're talking about portfolio roles. They're talking about leadership roles. They're talking about things that actually they weren't aware existed and the opportunities to them and how they make it fit around their day-to-day work. Fair enough. Can't argue with that, can we? Well, that's it. The end. Thank you for joining us in season one and we look forward to having you back with us in season two. Keep well, keep safe. Produced by Therapeutic Reflections Limited. See show notes for contact details.